Welcome to The Catalyst, where we explore creative ideas to spark innovation in an unhealthy healthcare system. I'm your host, Dr. Lara Salyer, a physician and mom of three who is reimagining the way I practice medicine after suffering and overcoming burnout. Join me as I teach you how to optimize flow and catalyze your own revolution in healing. Tune in for candid conversations with leading experts in conventional and holistic healthcare who dare to believe a better future is possible for all of us. Life is made of teeny catalytic moments of immense impact. When strung together, the transformation is magical. Join us and let's color outside the lines. Today, we talk to Dr. Holly McKenna. You are going to want to listen, especially check out about halfway through this interview. She gives you one simple thing you can do to start your healing, and you should trust her. She's a doctor. Dr. Holly McKenna is a board-certified psychiatrist, and she has been in practice for over 20 years. She's fellowship trained in integrative medicine and specializes in providing whole-person care to those who have experienced psychological trauma and traumatic brain injuries. She's certified in auricular acupuncture and distance Reiki. She is a powerhouse because she has moved beyond the color by number, typical medical training into creating her own vibrant, colorful masterpiece. And she folds in some of these quote unquote, non-traditional healing practices to level up the healing she provides for her patients. We talk all about feminine energy, yin Young, we talk about how she has crafted her own healing journey and now offers this for her patients in New Orleans. So, check out this awesome interview with Catalyst Dr. Holly McKenna. Oh, Dr. Holly McKenna, I am so excited to have you on the Catalyst podcast. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. Oh, my goodness. If our viewers could see you, it's adorable. You have a pelican necklace on. You're from New Orleans. And I always love watching you on social media because you're such a community advocate. I mean, you're always doing things like the Mardi Gras parade. You're making cool shoes. I mean, you embody New Orleans to me and I've never been there. So thank you for sharing your time. I wish you could share your weather right now. How is it down there? Oh my gosh. It's gorgeous. It's like in the eighties and beautiful, just enough of a breeze. And it's perfect because right now all our festivals are restarting since the pandemic. So we're having like the New Orleans jazz fest that hasn't happened in two years. We just had the French quarter fest. And then of course we have the Pelicans and the NBA. So folks are just like ready to party down here. (laughs) That is awesome. And that's what I love is like you bring the, the serious healing with the colorful kind of nuanced, fun, artsy healing. And so you being a board certified psychiatrist and also an integrative medicine, you've had such an interesting journey yourself. Would you mind telling us a little bit about you as a catalyst? Tell me what brought you where you are now and your thoughts on healing and medicine. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I think back on my journey and so many times I just felt like a square peg in a round hole. Like looking back, I think I was just really the stubborn Irish nature that I've had since I was a kid kind of pulled me through in times when there were definitely moments probably dissuading me had I like taken a step back and looked at it. (laughs) Um, I mean, even, you know, when I started medical school, I was drawn towards Wake Forest, which is in a more conservative area of North, of, sorry, North Carolina. 
than um, where I had gone to undergrad. I'd gone on an undergrad in the Triangle, which is kind of more of a liberal area. Um, and even there, I, I just had moments where I was like, you know, these people don't think the way I do, but that's okay. <laughs> and I just didn't take it that seriously. I um, actually first became a patient myself during medical school. Um, I developed uh, proteinuria. So I had some issues with my oh, kidneys. Wow. I had some joint pains. I remember at one point my mom telling me that she would give me a kidney if she needed to, because I really like was kind of flirting with some failure there Oh my goodness. Um, and ended up taking a year off. So I had gone through uh, most of my well, actually my half of my first year of medical school, as I said, I went to Wake Forest. Part of why I went to Wake Forest is because they had a, an evidence problem-based curriculum. So we were in small groups learning kind of based on like we get a, uh, a case at the beginning of the week. And then, you know, there were about eight of us in the room with a, one or two professors. We would come up with learning uh, uh ideas to kind of focus on during the week and then meet a few times during the week, kind of sharing things oh, that wow. we studied and teach each other. And for me, this was the best way to learn. I love interaction. I love talking, obviously. And so big lectures just were not something that would really draw my interest or keep me engaged. So this is why I went to Wake Forest. The problem is though, I ended up missing a period of time because of my health issues. And they, you know, this was a fairly new program they didn't really know how to deal with me. So they invited me to come back, <laughs> which in the moment uh, was somewhat devastating. Fortunately, I had my younger brother with me who's full of humor and, you know, immediately uh -huh. started making fun of everything. So that kept me laugh laughing and light. Um, but, you know, so from the start, it wasn't an easy path. Uh, but I think because I was always patient and doctor at the same time, uh, that kept me focused on what was really driving me, which was to be a healer. Um, you know, yeah, I, that's a unique perspective. You're like running yeah. the parallel. You're both patient and doctor. Sure. Right. Right. And that was always the case. Even, you know, I ended up going into residency initially for pediatrics. Um, I did two years of pediatrics. I had some health issues then. Um, and I loved my teenagers. I, you know, I love children, obviously. I have two of my own now. Um, but was I noticed what was really drawing me was the conversations I was able to have with them. And I part of why I love teenagers is because they would call me out and they wouldn't yes. like, let me talk in a way that wasn't the truth. Um, and I noticed, I know specifically like when I was in the oncology ward as a pediatrician where we were focused on writing the chemotherapy orders and yes. the labs and all these things that really weren't bringing joy to me. Um, the pediatric uh, psychiatrist would come in and the kids would get so excited because they could play games and talk about what was going on and their fears and all the things. And I wanted oh. to be in those conversations. And so that's what yes. really made me realize, like, maybe this wasn't the original path that I was meant to kind of follow through. Like it gave me some background that I think has always been helpful to draw upon in kind of more of a traditional medicine sense. But I ended up then changing not only programs, but changing schools. Like I was at Tulane for pediatrics. I ended up going across the street to LSU, literally across the street. Um, to psychiatry where it was run by analysts. So it was not only psychiatry, but it was like therapy based 
program. Right. Right. Which is well, it's unique for most psychiatry programs. Yes, that that is very unique. And what I love is you're kind of um, representing, I think, a lot of people that end up going to medical school because that is our current view of what being a healer is, is going to medical school. And that's the best. That's the highest level of healing. So some of us, you know, wonderful, highly driven people go, well, I'm going to go to the best and the hardest and I'm going to be a doctor. And I like that you've noticed throughout your journey, all the things that spoke to you more than others. And you've kind of crafted your route. And a lot of us end up getting into medical school in the same way where we don't know what our outcome is going to be. We're just sampling the platter of rotations and what, what do we like to do? What do we not like to do? Where do we steer? And you have walked that line on both ends saying, and I love your word choice of healer, because really that is so encompassing many other things. I'm sure in New Orleans, there's a lot of different cultural ways to view healing and other modalities than just Western medicine. So tell me more about how you started folding in some of your cool things that you've been learning. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, as you were saying that I realized, I think part of why I, other than the type A personality that I had in, you know, high school undergrad, I think part of what drew me towards being a medical doctor is because my dad was a physician um, and my parents are Irish immigrants. So as the child of immigrants, you know, that kind of wanting to do the best back in Ireland, dad couldn't be a physician as he wanted to be because in Ireland, it's such a small country. You literally have to like wait for the, the village doctor to retire And oftentimes it's their child that's kind of taking over that role. And my grandfather was worked in the railroad. Like my family before my dad was not very interesting medical field, really. Um, We had nurses, but we didn't have any physicians. And so he really did have to leave the country to kind of pursue this. Um, And so I think his drive and his bravery and my parents, my mom's bravery to kind of take that new step and go into this new adventure also probably kept me going to the, oh, I got to be the best. I got to do the MD. I can't kind of, you know, do something different when looking in hindsight, I think there were so many other modalities that, that called to me. Like I really, I early on in college, even I started meditating. Um, I, you know, it probably was flirting with some of the autoimmunity that, that ended up kind of coming together later, a few years later, but, you know, had some pain issues, had some kind of anxiety and mm-hmm. things going on. And so it was actually when I was in Ireland visiting as a foreign student, you know, I was visiting with my family basically and stayed there for a semester. And then actually went back in the summer. I ended up seeing my mom's best friend's son was a Buddhist monk. <laughs> That's awesome. And so I went into his temple in Dublin, Ireland, and I'll never forget the feeling I had walking into this room and just the peace like that. Oh. I mean, I can feel it now just thinking about it, like just that sense of peace. Like you can just feel there's something about this sacred space that's yes. been created and honored in how it's treated, how it, you behave in it. And to me, that is something that we have forgotten about a great deal in Western medicine, about the creation of sacred space, about ritual that does so. Um, And I kind of got introduced to that early on. Didn't necessarily connect it with, hey, this is something I could use in my role as a healer until later, you know, until Mm -hmm. I kind of grew up a little bit more and got more aware of those things. But I did start meditation 
And I did start that, you know, kind of understanding my sense of self and, you know, in, in, uh, college, high school, what have you, I was always a dancer. And I remember coming back from Ireland and my choreographer at, at Duke university at my undergrad, he said to me, Holly, what did you do? And I'm like, ah. I'm like, I, I took some classes. And he's like, no, there's something different. And when I mentioned somehow in passing about the meditation, he's like, that's what it is. That's amazing. So I somehow connected with my inner sense of being that came out in my dancing and my creativity and my just sense of self on the stage. Um, and that I've kind of seen in and out in my adult life. You know, when I sure. go back to meditation, I'm more present when I'm with my, my patients and folks I'm trying to bring into healing. I was at the VA for about, or just over a decade. Um, I think because I was drawn back into that, I started studying dialectical behavior therapy, which is very, uh, mindfulness based. I, um, really was a resident said to me, you know, Holly, there's this cool program back at Duke about integrative healthcare that you should go to. I was in a leadership position. This was like a leadership, uh, certificate you could do in a year with, with their like integrative medicine and their school of business. And I'm like, okay. I mean, I'm, I'm like, Hey, trip back to North Carolina, like on right. the some, that's that sounds sometimes, cool. Yeah. That's how we <laughs> find some of these fun things. Yeah. Right. Like, so, you know, I had like my own selfish reasons for it, but that really opened my eyes. That's when I first started meeting folks who had done, uh, integrative medicine fellowships with, uh, specifically with Andrew Weil, I remember one of them who I super admire, he's this integrative oncologist, he's uh, just amazing, asked me, he said, so Holly, are you an integrative psychiatrist? I'm like, I don't know. And he's like, you do mindfulness, you, you have been starting to teach people Tai Chi, you've been, you know, asking them about what makes them like what drives them what makes them happy. It's like, that's integrative medicine. I'm right. Like, I think you've touched oh. on it. Like, yeah, like we use different words, meaning different labels. And, you know, you've mentioned before, you know, conversations about how out of balance medicine has become and how very, yeah, energy dominant, you know, that we have milestones and, and achievements and metrics and we not just in conventional medicine, but it's starting to seep into functional integrative medicine as well, because we have to prove outcomes. We have to prove progress. We have to show our work almost like my, my horrible geometry class, sophomore year of high school, like show your work, you know, how did you get at the answer? But I think for medicine, sometimes healing can happen in so many different ways. Don't you think? Yeah. I think we need to remember to leave room for the magic. Um, we, do get very results and data driven, which, you know, that was one of the things I learned early on when I studied with the folks in the business side of integrative medicine is that in order to kind of convert people that are in the more traditional space, in order to get that the money and support, you do have to collect data and show that what you have seen is working actually is right. evidence-based to speak their language in that <laughs> right right speak their language you have to you have to be the translator so um that i think ha- there's a lot of value in that but i think at the same time we do need to kind of leave that space for the relationship to build um i talk about it as the kind of bringing in the divine feminine you know and when we think about uh the more traditional um program uh 
like health systems, uh, like traditional Chinese medicine, Ayurveda, they have kind of a balance of different energies, um, like the yin of Chinese medicine, the divine feminine of those, those energies are kind of more of the being energy. You know, it's really, it's very similar in Western medicine. Like we all have estrogen and testosterone in our bodies, right? Yeah, right. So we have female and male hormones as we kind of label them. So there is even on a biologic level, this balance that has to happen. So, you know, as we move through different parts of our life, these different hormones are changing. Well, when we look at it from an energy perspective, those things are also changing. Um, so that feminine, it's almost like the egg when we're talking about procreation that, you know, it's kind of being, it's uh, allowing space for things to occur, allowing for the magic and not uh, kind of rushing into things. Yes. Right. So then like, but then our masculine side and we all have both and we need to have both to kind of live life in a way that's going to allow us to progress. But the masculine side is that kind of more doing energy that um, trying to get that data or meet those measures if you're in kind of more of an organizational medicine space. Um, and what happens oftentimes in Western medicine from my, what I've observed, especially in that organizational kind of insurance driven model is that that masculine side, that data, that collecting money, that needing to justify to the insurance company that takes over in a way that doesn't allow for the magic gets away from the relationship between the provider, physician, whom, you know, therapist, whomever, and the patient. Right. I think you're, this is all supposed to be about, right? Like they, it gets so much in the doing, the getting the test results, the getting the labs, the ordering all the things that it's almost as if the patient isn't even there. They could be off at the mall and we're doing all, doing, doing, doing all these things in spite of them being present and being available to us to create right. a relationship with and to listen to and to often get the answers without doing all the things. Right. I mean, I think you're also describing just our human existence in general. There's a delicate balance and cadence of doing and just being and very similar to that neurochemical flow state that, you know, we do have that magic inside. We do play, but we've forgotten how to, and there is an element of a skills and challenge balance that you need to have a little bit of challenge for you to dip into that drive and enjoy that, that flow that can come with. And I think we've hobbled ourselves in medicine by kind of extricating the ownership of health on a patient. I think we've disempowered them by saying, we will fix it for you. Here we are. Here's our medicines. Here's our metrics. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to push it on you. And that makes them feel like they have no agency. So they're waiting for that external locus of control to say, okay, I guess, am I better now? I don't know. And so because we've disrupted their agency and now we're burning out because we're responsible to fix everyone. I think that's the the sad tragedy of healing in America. And what would be your, if you could have a magic wand in your little Dr. Holly ideal world, how would you balance that yin and yang? How would you promote that healing? Really? I think it's, 
allowing yourself to be the healer that drew you into the role that you are now occupying. Um, and that does take a moment to take a step back and to really realize what drives you, why you are there with that person, why you want to be with them on that journey. Um, I've Once I left organizational medicine and entered into my own practice, I did so you know, I think I've told you before, a week before the pandemic made New Orleans a hotspot. So I had no choice but to re-examine sure. like what drove me to become a healer, to do what it is I wanted to do. Because at that point, I could have just been like, you know what, this is too hard. I'm going to go like buy a coffee shop or something. Right. <laughs> Some of my colleagues have done. Um, but really, I took a step back and realized, okay, I enjoy partnering with people and helping them become empowered and helping them live their best lives. Like this is what really kind of gets me, gets yeah, my lights you up. Flowing, yeah. gets going, right. And so I'm like, well, how can I do that? And knowing that this is a pandemic, knowing that people aren't necessarily going to be able to pay the rates that I think I deserve, knowing that, you know, I am still kind of building a practice at this point, I was still a fellow with Andy Weil. So I, you know, I was still building my confidence in the integrative space with using supplements and, and what have you. And so that's what actually drove me to then just offering care for free to first responders and physicians, uh, to folks who were dealing on the front lines with COVID, because I felt like I was a little blessed in that I was able to do things through telemedicine. I had stepped away just enough from organizational medicine that no one could kind of make me do anything as far as being on the front lines. But I also remembered, you know, being from New Orleans, I'll never forget when the first responders came in after Katrina and really saved us, like really lifted our spirits, helped us as a city, you know, lift up and hold yes. our hands and kind of take us and drive us forward. So in my mind, this was the universe allowing me to pay that back. I um, love that. So, That's beautiful. And you're mentioning yeah. these small moments, like the heroes coming in after Katrina. And it's those small things that make sometimes the biggest impact, those teeny little moments of you noticing, wow, I really enjoy those teenagers because they ask great questions and the conversations are so truth-based. I'm noticing this, like those tiny moments have really led you on a trajectory. And seeing those heroes come in motivated you to say, you know, I really do want to practice on my own terms and be the one providing those teeny homeopathic doses of, you know, catalyst moments. And you mentioned you had your own catalyst moment in Ireland. You knew a GP. And please tell me that story. Of Yeah, it's, it's he was actually a classmate of my dad's when I uh, was in medical school. I went back for a rotation, you know, when you're kind of at that stage where you're able to make your own electives. And I had originally been trying to go back to see my grandfather. He ended up passing away before I got there, but it was still an amazing visit in that uh, I was able to kind of tag along with this general practitioner in Ireland in a small town um, in Kildare, kind of near where my dad grew up and uh, kind of see him going in and out with various patients. You know, we had tea breaks, which I love. Like we would literally be having tea in the afternoon and a patient would come up to the desk. Me, the American would be like, oh, I better put away the tea and stand up. They'd be like, oh no, no. 
finish your tea. And, you know, and oftentimes wow. they take a cup also and everyone would kind of relax and have a moment. I'm like, what is this? <laughs> it was wow. amazing. Um, and he, uh, you know, so I would kind of tag along with him, go, he would do house calls during his lunch hour. And I'll never forget. There was one moment where I was about to follow him into the room as I always did. And he said, Holly, do you mind, uh, taking a break? I'm about to see this lady. Uh, her husband died last week and I just called her and asked her to come in just for a chat. And, and so I saw like his assistant brought in, you know, the tea for the two of them to sit and just be, and, you know, I wasn't in the room, but I can only imagine just the presence. Yeah. Is being present and holding space for her grief had to have probably been a game changer because I've dealt with grief myself. And if you don't allow for that space to be held, mm-hmm. it can, you know, it haunts you for yes, maybe even decades later. Well, and what a moment he's sharing and what I grieve and maybe my experience might not be something you share, but I think it, a lot of people do feel that in America, we're very defensive of our time as physicians as we should be. I mean, we are busy, but to the point of, and maybe I don't want to blame attorneys or malpractice, but you're scared to even see people in public because they're going to want medical advice. And then, uh oh, you've given them something to do. And if it goes wrong, and imagine if we could shift, if I could have a magic wand, no offense to attorneys out there, and just say there is a different vibe where we could set, you know, where we can relax a bit and put our shoulders down as healers and as physicians and say, it's okay to be human and chat. We worry about counter-transference and all, you know, like we've forgotten humanity. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think one of the things that integrative medicine specifically has really taught me is that there's some power in allowing myself to be a human in the room and to really be a partner with the patient. I, you know, I was, like I mentioned, I was trained by analysts. So, you know, I, when I was originally trained, I was like, oh, I'm not allowed to emote. I'm not allowed to like tell them anything. I have to be like this, you know, speck on the wall that they forget is there while they're talking. Um, And it was interesting. I went into training analysis myself and my analyst wasn't like that. Uh, She's a goddess. She's amazing. She saw me through Katrina and through my dad's death. And she was very present. You know, I did sit on the couch, but she allowed, you know, she shared information about herself. There was a lot of back and forth. Um, She used elements of different types of healing. So she was very integrative in her approach as well. And now that I've allowed myself to kind of be in this space where I have, you know, I do 90 minute to two hour evaluations with my folks and I allow for, you know, longer appointments and now, you know, coaching and the different interactions and it's really allowed me to hold space for things in a way that I didn't let myself do before. You know, I think it's allowed me to heal some of my own wounds uh, that I had as a patient that maybe I put on a shelf and kind of didn't let myself revisit because now I'm being present for the people that are in front of me while they're dealing with their traumas. You know, I'm not exposing or or sharing things to the point that it's becoming about me, not at all. But if I'm talking to a mom who's dealing with postpartum depression and I've had a number of losses, I have two children, but I have, you know, there were seven pregnancies. So Mm -hmm. I had a number of times where I had a loss and then the hormones, you know, led to baby blues and mood dysregulation. 
I've shared that with these moms. I remember having a conversation with a mom who had a lot of anxiety after a miscarriage. And I told her, I'm, it's embarrassing, but hey, it's, it's, there's probably a record of it somewhere. I called 911 one night after a miscarriage because I woke up thinking someone was in the house. Like I was convinced. And my husband was like, where? I mean, there was oh no one in the gosh. house. Right, right. Um, but I just, my brain was so... Yeah you know, out of sorts from the hormonal changes and from the, um, the loss. Um, but imagine that healing, you brought that patient just by dropping an anchor and saying, yeah, me too. Really? Like right. I, me I too. that's all me you have to too. say. Yeah. You know, and, and it's, it's such a, I think a tragic thing that we've tried to keep us so clinical. And like you said, like a, we're just an observer of your experience because that feels so cold. I mean, we all grew up with images of doctors at the bedside holding their patient's hand and, and now we're in a shortage of healers. So we can't do that, but yet we should be able to hold that space for them. I think that's very motivating for them to feel not alone. I think that's the biggest healing we could offer them is just feeling okay. And what they're experiencing in their body. Yes. I look back at my my experience in the patient role and the, the doctors that I consider mentors are oftentimes ones that did hold my hand. Like when I had a loss or gave me a hug when there wasn't a heartbeat or, or, you know, let me cry when, you know, I had to take time off medical school or when my dad died and it affected how I did on an exam, you know, like really held space for that and allowed me to be human in the room. And allowed themselves to be humans right there beside me. Right. Um, right. And, Especially with grief and, and anything yeah. like that challenging emotion of grief, which is complex and multi-layered, it really does affect your brain and your cognition and similarly burnout. And as both patient and clinician are equally burned out and experiencing the same brain pattern as grief, if we were to put all of us in a functional MRI, that's an a very difficult mountain to climb. And when you were in those moments of just feeling so, you know, grief stricken, you had those healers show up for you in a way that helped you. Um, how would you say if somebody's listening right now and they're feeling stuck either in grief or feeling uncertain about their own body and how they can find healing, how would you motivate a patient or client of yours right now? You know, really, I usually would invite the two of us to take a breath because oftentimes we forget to breathe when we're kind of in that space. Beautiful. Um, and that allows both them and me to kind of get back into this moment because, you know, I'm human as well. And even though I was trained by analysts, part of my training was to know what you're bringing into the room, right? To know right. what your like countertransference may be or what your traumas may be that might influence how you are being in that mm -hmm. space. So inviting us both to take a breath allows me to be aware of maybe anything that may be coming up that may not be so helpful to share, but is still something that might potentially interfere with my abilities. So, you know, kind of being aware of that and allowing for that. I mean, during the pandemic, I think we all had that happen, right? Like we maybe were, if, if someone listening is a first responder, like going into the ED and dealing with people with COVID all day and then having maybe an immunocompromised child or an older parent who lives with you and having to, you know, I have so many friends who had to like change all their clothes in the, in mm -hmm. the garage and rinse themselves off before seeing their families. But in the moment with that patient, 
that's not what it's about. It's about what's happening to that patient. So I think initially taking that breath and allowing yourself to recognize like what might be going on and whether or not it's something that's helpful for the person in the room or is something you kind of need to pay attention to and be aware of and hold space for later, maybe with some colleagues or with your own coach or therapist or what have you. Yes. And then being present to, to that person's needs. I think that's a fantastic just a golden nugget of advice for any healers or clinicians out there is that first of all, you're doing two steps. You're admitting to yourself, I need some space. I need to own this, this emotion or feeling, and I'm going to walk myself through it with the patient by taking a deep breath, which is very cleansing. And it's just amazing how much breath work is an important part of any healing journey, but you're giving that guide to say, it's okay to be imperfect and we're just by allowing, you know, awareness is curative, right? We talk about that, just allowing that moment and self-reflection. I think a lot of times we project agendas or we have the propensity to a pro project an agenda on someone's healing path, just like a patient may project an agenda that thinks that we are, you know, in bed with big pharma and we're getting all the profits from Pfizer, you know? So a lot of our, our perspectives can be just skewed based on things that we might think. And just by taking a a spacer, a breath and saying, okay, what's happening now? What's your next step? It can be so empowering for patients to have that choice of how fast or slow they want to progress in healing. Tell me how your practice is now compared to where it was years ago. Tell me oh how gosh. you practice medicine. Yeah, it's so different. Um, you know, I love my veterans. So I still do a contract with uh, Tulane Center for Brain Health. They actually found me because I'm an integrative medicine psychiatrist so I offer, you know, an integrative uh, psychiatric evaluation and then group medical appointments for veterans with traumatic brain injuries there, which I love and I hope to do until I retire in some form or fashion. But outside of that, I have my own practice. Um, I called it Dara Wellness. Dara is Irish for oak. Um, my dad's family is from Kildare, County Kildare, which in, in Irish or in Irish Gaelic is Kildara or castle in the oak. Um, and so it's really a reflection of not only my people, but here in New Orleans, as we talked about, my love of New Orleans, New Orleans is full of beautiful oak trees. And you know, th so they it represents both communities, but also represents the tree of life. So I really wanted to bring in all those elements. Um, so, you know, I was very cognizant of that, of why I was doing what I was doing from the start. So with that, I do these longer evaluations with folks, um, offering, you know, what, as I would say to someone on a discovery call, like what they would expect in a traditional psychiatric evaluation, you know, asking about any medications they've been on or hospitalizations or family history. But then I also get into the nitty gritty, the fun part, like why I do what I do, uh, like what they're eating what their yes. movement is like, are they exercising at all? Or are they just moving at work? And you know, how much movement is there? Is that something that we're kind of counting as some passive exercise? And then what's, I've really started diving into their spirituality practice, uh, any type of mindfulness practice, you know, uh, Herbert Benson and Harvard, you know, passed away recently and he really found out about that relaxation response. And he studied folks using mantras or prayer. So, and here in New Orleans, it's a very Catholic city. So I am cognizant of if someone has a prayer practice or if it's more of a mindfulness practice or if it's a mixture of both. Right. And whatever they, that may look like, whether it's 
that they're practicing some hoodoo or they're practicing something, some paganism or some Catholicism or a mixture of all the things, any type of connectivity to source or whatever that means to the person is still, you know, Dr. Benson taught us bringing that relaxation response, allowing the brain to heal and get into that space. So that is something I really allowed myself more recently to kind of deep dive into more than maybe I really felt comfortable doing before. Like for some reason there was a part of me and I think it was my traditional training that felt like that wasn't allowed. Sure. Um, And it's also invisible. Like, I feel like, again, we have to show our work a lot. And so we're always looking to show our work and okay, what is my note going to say? And can it stand up in court? And what do I mention? And what don't I mention? And what is too much? And what is too like, and like, this is the invisible goodness that you're giving them is okay. Let's, let's talk about what is still going to heal you. And I like that you're using word choices that fit with them. Is it mantra? Is it prayer? But it's all the same. It's connecting to source. That's beautiful. And that's the invisible work that, you know, is probably more catalytic than any of the stuff we can do traditionally. So it sounds like what you're doing now compared to years ago, it's very holistic. You're, you're talking about things they can improve on their own, like eating and sleeping and moving. And I assume you're, you're in that center part of the matrix for those IFM people, you know, in that spiritual and community center. Um, and you offer group visits. It sounds amazing. Is there anything in the future that you're looking to explore to add to your practice? Yeah, I started offering Reiki sessions. I was blessed to be part of this, the beauty of my specific journey in integrative medicine is that it's really allowed me to find what I didn't realize I was missing, which is a lot of female mentors, a lot of female healers. Um, I just didn't have that in medical school and in my traditional training so much. Um, you know, I, it just shows how important representation is. And I'm very much aware of that more than I was really when it was, when I was in the space of not having it myself. Um, And so I, you know, was able to find a Reiki master and so have trained in both uh, in-person and distance Reiki. And so that's one of the things I offer to people now. Um, You know, a lot of folks are very interested in this and there is evidence for it. It's not, of course, it's not going to be to the same level as the medications because we don't have invisible work. Uh, Yeah. Right. It's same as like when you're studying prayer, like we've looked at studies for prayer for people. Part of why you can't have, it's really hard to have a control group for the prayer practice is that it's really hard to tell people not to pray for the control group. So when they look at like the, the evidence behind prayer, it's difficult to kind of have that control and Reiki, same thing. Like you really have to have an intention behind it, have source behind it, but it is something that's part of all these older medical systems, the energy. I mean, mm-hmm. when for folks who are kind of like, eh, I don't know about that. Look at heart math, consider mm-hmm. heart math and the evidence of, of uh, heart rate variability. Yes. Look at the studies. I invite those folks, but looking at mother and child, mother with baby in lap with a, with a blanket between her body and the baby's body, mm-hmm. her heart rate variability and watching, they monitored both hers and babies. And without her even touching the baby, the heart rate variability synced up. I know that's awesome. There's so much power in that. And that to me is part of the intuitive sense that a lot of us who are kind of in this space hold when we kind of feel this empathic sense towards each other. And when we're taking that breath together, 
I think a big part of why tuning calming is calming the person across from us is that heart rate variability is sinking. Mm -hmm. There's so there is evidence. It's just that we haven't looked at it the right way. But see, this Um, is why I think you're so critically important is you with the training you have. And a lot of us in the same instance that are traditionally trained are exploring not anything new. Reiki is not new, you know, prayer is not new meditation, breath work, but having a more people looking at that Venn diagram overlap is going to benefit us all. It's like, I feel like going to medical school is sort of a paint by number, right? We're painting by number. We're learning things. Um, and then now we're all painting our own masterpiece off, off the, you know, there's no rules because we can create and customize our own career. And that's what you're doing is you're picking and choosing the things that really flavor what you want to bring into the world, which I think is so beautiful. And the world benefits from you being at your most energetic and curious. And it's just amazing. I love that you're creating your healing package for patients that includes not just one method, but so many different ways to achieve growth. Yeah, I really, and I think something that is important to acknowledge is that when we allow ourselves to heal as healers and we allow ourselves to really explore our own source, our own connectivity to the planet, to the universe, that is going to naturally allow us to evolve in a way that's going to be beneficial to those that we are trying to help. And so, you know, I've noticed on my own journey and evolution as a human, I just can't help but naturally bring that into the sacred space that I'm holding with this person that I'm offering healing to. Oh, Um, that's beautiful. Absolutely. That's the, that's the way I think all of us should put our oxygen masks on first, you know, and really dive into what is bringing us closer to our own joy, happiness, and peace. And, and that's how we can help our whole family and our communities. And it just starts with one little tiny change, you know, sequence together, big impact. Oh my goodness. Dr. Holly, I'm so excited that we got to have this talk. I cannot wait to show your website, which is beautiful. I love the Dara wellness, everything that you're doing in New Orleans. If you are listening and you haven't checked her out, please follow her on social media. I just love all the things that you do for your community. So please tell our listeners where they can find you. Yeah, thank you. Um, so my website is Dara, D-A-R-A, Wellness NOLA. That's for New Orleans, N-O-L-A dot com. Um, and honestly, most of my social media is also Dara Wellness NOLA. Um, you can find a, my Twitter is uh, Dr. McKenna. Same with my clubhouse um, and my LinkedIn. But everything else is uh, Dara Wellness NOLA. And I'd love Beautiful. for folks to reach out and, and yes. have a conversation. Yes. Oh, you are a firecracker, a big catalyst. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your beauty and how you eloquently combine the art and science and healing all together of medicine. Thank you, Dr. Holly. And thank Thank you for everybody who's listening. Have a great day and keep coloring outside the lines.